Welcome to the Table of Perspective, where we take a deeper look into how the internal narrative of an individual actually leads to their decisions and the outcome of their life. So we are going to be talking about a very interesting show, basically covering the, the last topic as well, but just diving a bit deeper into three sections of um, the life and faith of C.S. Lewis. So the first part will be what's good about C.S. Lewis. The second part is the matter of how and the last part about suffering. So um, as we go into these topics, as I'm sure you're very excited to hear about, um, let's first go into our first song and please enjoy. C.S. Lewis. 
This is a question that I've had to ask myself quite a lot because there's just something about his writing that really enamors you. Um, and according to the book that I've been going through, The Romantic Rationalist, written or rather edited by John Piper and David Matisse, on page 34, it speaks about revealing reality. And this is as, um, obviously it is a collaboration between these two editors that have analyzed his life and a lot of his writings. And most importantly, the thing that most intrigued me is how his core values determined basically everything that he decided, pondered and, and came to conclusions of. So in Revealing Reality, it goes as follows. In the preface to The Pilgrim's Regress, he comments, All good allegory exists not to hide, but to reveal, to make the inner world more palpable by giving it an imagined concrete embodiment. And in his poem, Impentinence, he defends imaginary talking animals by saying that they are masks for man, cartoons, parodies by nature, formed to reveal us. In other words, heroic myth and penetrating allegory and great romance and talking animals are masks formed to reveal. Again, the paradox of likening, depicting some of the aspects of reality as what is, not in order to reveal more of what is. Likening in apologetics goes as follows. But lest I give the wrong impression that Lewis was a likener only in his poetry and fiction, I need to stress that he was a, he was a likener in everywhere, in everything he wrote. Myths and allegories and romances and fairy tales and extended metaphors. But thinking and writing metaphorically and imaginatively and analogically were present everywhere in Lewis's life and work. Lewis was a poet and a craftsman and an image maker in everything he wrote. Alistair McGrath observed that what we captivate the reader by of Lewis's sermons and essays and apologetic works, not just his novels was his ability to write prose tinged with poetic vision, its carefully crafted phrases lingering in the memory because they have captivated the imagination. That's a point that I'd like to stress specifically, is that everything that he wrote and he did has this, this manner of captivating the imagination, which for me was quite a foreign concept because um, he had this ability to wield the skill and excellence of words, observation and creativity. It fascinated me so much because I found that these fields very intriguing. They were, they were very intriguing to me. But when I closely observed them, I found them useless almost. They have no eternal significance nor survival value. As a matter of life and death, time spent and resources on these uh, such fields are actually fleeting. And that is why when I came to learn about C.S. Lewis and his core values and the direction in which he had done his writing and even his observations, why he did things, he found the core root of them. And from that point, he was able to then make decisions in almost a logical manner, which is actually something he had done quite a lot in a lot of his writings, which was honestly quite funny because majority of his work seemingly was from the imagination. So to continue on, it says, the qualities we associate with good poetry such as an appreciation of the sound of words, rich and suggestive analogies and images, vivid description and lyrical sense are found in Lewis's prose. And I think this is exactly right. And it makes him not only refreshing and illuminating to read on almost any topic, but also a great model for how to think and write about everything. Walter Hooper puts it as this. 
A sampling of all Lewis's works will reveal the same man in his poetry as in his clear and sparkling prose. His wonderful ima imagination is the guiding thread. It is continuously at work, and that is why I think his admirers find it so pleasant to be instructed by him in subjects they were hitherto cared for so little. Everything he, ca uh, he touched and his kind of magic had um, a way about it. And it is indeed pleasant to be instructed by a master Leitner. Images and analogies and creative illustrations and metaphors and surprising turns of phrase are pleasant. A, a word fitly spoken is like apples gold in a setting of silver, as in states Pro uh, Proverbs 25 verses 11. Sol Solomon even uses an image to celebrate the pleasure of images. But my point here has not been to be the pleasure of likening, but rather its power of illumination, the power to reveal truth. So to go on to the second part, which is the matter of hell, uh, is, is quite an intriguing part because some might think that for such a, a man of imagination and, and rather a man of, of nonsensical thinking, supposedly, uh, you wouldn't think that the matter of hell would have that much significance. But as it states on page 148, or, or rather the appendix of um, 147, it states as follows from Screwtape Letters that C.S. Lewis wrote. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones and without signposts. You might not think that the matter of hell is really that big of a deal, but in C.S. Lewis's life it was actually quite significant because... If you do not know the purpose of living, what is the purpose of dying? And if you know the purpose of dying, then you would have a reason to live. And this is exactly what it states as follows. As many people think of, uh, the, I guess, the, the matter of hell being uh, only out of God's nonsensical wrath. Why would he put people in a place of complete suffering? And, and it goes as follows on page 148. He says that um, C.S. Lewis said of Hull, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it is in my lay power, but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and has the support of reason. So what, most, uh, what Lewis says mostly here is solidly biblical, where there are many where many may think a chink of his logic is actually where uh, it is for many of us. We wish there were no hell, and imagine this comes from our sense of goodness and kindness. But God could never remove hell, yet chooses not to. Do we have more confidence in our goodness than his? What are we to do with Revelation 18 verses 20? Where God brings down his wrath on Babylon's people, and then says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Doesn't this suggest that in heaven we will see sin's horrors clearly and have far stronger convictions of hell's justice? Hell is not pleasant, appealing, or encouraging, but neither is evil. Rather, it is a place where evil is judged. Indeed, if being so sentenced to hell is just punishment, then the absence of hell would actually itself be evil. And I just want to go over that again, because it's something that deeply convicted me. If we say, indeed, if being sentenced to hell is just punishment, then the absence of hell would be itself evil. Hell itself is morally good, because a good God must punish evil. 
most of us imagine that we hate the idea of hell because we love people too much. And and specifically, I'd like to go back on that again, because this is a, a, a phrase or a term that is often used. Most of us imagine that we hate the idea of hell because we, quote unquote, love people too much to want them to suffer. But it implies that God loves that statement in itself implies that God loves them less, which is absolutely false. Our revulsion is understandable, but what about hell makes us cringe? Is it the wickedness that's being punished? Is it the suffering of those who might have turned to Christ? Or do we cringe because we imagine hell's punishments as wicked or disproportionate? Those very, these very different responses expose different views of God. Perhaps we hate hell too much because we do not hate evil enough. And that specifically I actually highlighted in the book because it's something that's not often thought of. Perhaps we hate hell too much because we do not hate evil enough. This is something that could have been developed more in Lewis's thinking. The same could be said of many of us. If we regard hell as a divine overreaction to sin, we deny that God has the moral right to inflict ongoing punishment on by any humans. By denying hell, we deny the extent of God's holiness. When we minimize sin's seriousness, we minimize God's grace in, in Christ's blood shed for us. For if the evils he died for aren't significant enough to warrant eternal punishment, perhaps the grace displayed on the cross isn't significant enough to warrant eternal praise. And that's the, the main part that I would like to share about how concerning um, C.S. Lewis's uh, perspective is that although it might be a harsh part to read from, um, if perhaps brought closely together or, or summarized, you could rather say that um, why exactly do you desire to go to heaven? The absence of God is, is hell itself because only God is good and the loss of God, God's absence, all you get is the loss of all good. Um, so I think this was something that really convicted me in, in considering hell and heaven. It's not merely an oasis or, or some suffering pit. It's that the rejection of all good. Why exactly would you want to go to heaven if in actual fact all that will be there is God? And if you do not want God himself, what exactly do you want to do in heaven? It's not merely just a, a, a lack of suffering because a lack of suffering is peace. And people are able to suffer physically, but with great peace overcome great far more actually extreme suffering. Um, and so we're going to go into our next song and then we'll close it off with the matter of suffering. So please enjoy. Life, I know they go low. 
You give me purpose, my provider And when my enemies surround me, got me tied up When they throw me in the pit inside the fire You are my God and my King and my Father Light to my path in the darkness Hope in my heart when they heartless falling You reach out and call us You're the lover of my soul, love is flawless They don't understand my goddess Keeping me high, I know they go low Cause me, I know, I know they soul Cause my gyre and my body It's a man I need to You are You're my provider of suffering um, and this one is just to close it off quite quickly uh, C.S. Lewis wrote several books um, being so one being uh, the problem of pain and the grief observed and I'll go a bit into the book as written here but he had experienced quite a lot of, su uh, of suffering and many people overlooked that because of his writings but I think that it was at that point where he was at that extreme helplessness that he was able to then look at what truly mattered. And I think that was definitely one of the things that I, um, I really enjoyed about C.S. Lewis's writing, as well as the fact that he, he was able to come to the core of something, the essence of existence, and then choose a path from that point. It's not merely that he had lived a good life and he had chosen his direction from that point of perspective, but it was he was at his ends and he found the thing that was worthy of following even at his end. Um, and I think that that refinement of mind and of thought was something that really inspired me. So on page 108 by Randy Alcorn, he goes as follows with tackling tough questions. Lewis was the first one to help me grapple with these big questions. In The Problem of Pain, he described how he used to argue against the Christian faith. So as you might know, um, C.S. Lewis was actually an atheist prior to his Christianity. So it says as follows, Not many years ago, when I was an atheist, if anyone had asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been, look at the universe we live in. History is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. The universe is basically running down. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been a transitory and senseless contortion upon which idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to, be, to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a spirit indifferent to good and evil, or else an evil spirit. And it goes as follows to continue. I love that Lewis clearly articulated the problem of evil and suffering better than most atheists, including Richard Dawkins. Yet he embraced a biblical worldview that had a far greater explanatory power than his atheism. And he passed it on to me and countless others. Young people go to college unprepared intellectually for what they'll face. 
Let's feed them some C.S. Lewis on evil and suffering before they hear the rants of atheist and agnostic college professors, most of them intellectual pygmies compared to Lewis. Let's not leave it to the world to ask the hard questions. The Bible raises these very questions and answers them better than any other worldview. It was Lewis who first showed me that. And I definitely agree to that. This was a concept that I had pondered but never actually delved into until I really found um, C.S. Lewis's writing. Um, and it continues to say, no stranger to suffering. A few years ago, I reread the problem of pain and a grief observed, one right after the other. The problem of pain is more reasoned and logical, while a grief observed contains raw suffering, as Lewis expressed overwhelming grief after the death of his wife, Joy. The books are supplementary, but given their context, not contradictory. There are two movies about C.S. Lewis named Shadowlands, of which I actually had one, watched one of them. It was phenomenal. You really must read, uh, watch, watch it first and then read the book. You might prefer it in that manner. They're both good productions, but the BBC version is generally more accurate. In the Hollywood version, Lewis is played by Anthony Hopkins. The movie portrays Lewis as an ivory tower professor who knew little of suffering. Then his wife, Joy, dies of cancer. It portrays him as doubting the supposedly superficial things he'd written in The Problem of Pain. At the movie's end, Lewis sits down in the attic next to his young stepson, Douglas Gresham. The real-life Doug Gresham is my friend, and we've discussed this false portrayal of Lewis. In Surprise by, Loy, by, by Joy, another book that um, Lewis had written, Lewis tells of his mother's death when he was nine. With my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable disappeared from my life of which I think many people can attest to and actually um, say that the same had happened to them. There was to be no more of the old security. It was the sea and islands now. The great con continent, like the Atlantis, had slid under the waves. He was alienated from, dis from his disapproving father and abused by bullies in his boarding school, one with the headmaster declared insane. On the battlefields of World War I, Lewis was hit by shrapnel in three places, one piece so close to his heart that it was never removed. By age 19, he'd, he'd seen countless friends slaughtered in battle. For years, Doug Gresham says Lewis suffered terrible nightmares about being back in the trenches. Though Lewis was phenomenally popular with students, it troubled him that his Oxford college, Magdalen, snubbed him by never granting him full professorship or academic chair. It was Oxford's rival, uh, Cambridge University, that offered him in 1954 the chair of medieval and renaissance literature. His peers at Oxford resented his faith and were embarrassed or, by or jealous of his popularity amongst the ma masses. So that was um, just a segment from his portrayal of suffering and pain. Uh, and I think that having that testimony is really significant because not only does it show that he wasn't just uh, an intellectual with thought-boggling questions and trying to argue certain concepts for concept's sake um, and thinking for thinking's sake, but he actually did experience the things that he testified of. And um, again, that significance of him first being atheist and, and having that almost existential crisis, could I say, um, of having meaninglessness to your life and experiencing death itself, really, by watching only his, not only his peers die on the war field, but only his own mother and wife. If you actually do watch the movie, it does bring you to tears, knowing that all of this he had used and actually turned into something of a testimony, which um, to kind of conclude is probably the biggest thing that I aspire to be like in, in C.S. Lewis, um, is the ability to experience certain things and to overcome them by 
by the core of faith, knowing that the purpose of God is greater than the things that we not only experience here on this earth, but has been analyzed so far that even hell itself is significant in the entire spectrum of, of the image. So to conclude, um, again, I'd highly encourage you to read The, rom the Romantic Rationalist. Um, it is something that you might need to chew through. Definitely take notes of but just for interest's sake, read the Chronicles of Narnia and Surprised by Joy. Um, it's, it's something that really inspires in the most difficult of circumstances. When you reduce life itself to death and life, you find there is significance in not only um, living for something worth dying for, but actually living while you're able to. So um, that is all from us to you, from me to you. I trust that you enjoyed this and somehow found it enjoyable and inspiring. So have a great day further and cheers. Stay updated and entertained with Active FM on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Apple Podcast, YouTube, LinkedIn, Spotify, Anchor, and everywhere else. Engage with us, like the posts, comment, share them out, retweet and repost. Spread the word. Active FM. Radio has never been better.